You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, founder and principal attorney at Sapphire Legal, Teresa McQueen. Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Today, we're talking with Tim Santoni, President and CEO of Santoni Investigations, about what employers and employees need to know when it comes to conducting effective and compliant background checks in the workplace. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Welcome back to our listeners and welcome to Workplace Perspective, Tim Santoni. Hello, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. No, really excited. It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Uh, Before we get started, why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about uh, you and what you do? Sure. So, again, my name is Tim Santoni. I own and operate an investigation and background screening company here in Orange County. I'm passionate about helping clients mitigate risk in their business and also um, helping them come up with creative solutions um, to effectively mitigate things when litigation, claims, embezzlement, fraud, and other workplace-related issues do arise. All right. I like it. I like that minimizing the risk. That's my goal, too. So when it comes to background checks, I think that, you know, they can be used sort of in employment context as, right, preliminary, cautionary, you know, measures. Um, But sometimes, as you and I both know, right, that they can reveal sometimes too much, leading to claims of um, discriminatory hiring practices, um, especially where uh, an employer uses information that they shouldn't to make a hiring decision. So one of my first questions to you is, and I've always always wondered about this from the other side of things, meaning not the litigation side of things, but how do you handle the clients who want it all? Even the stuff they're not supposed to see. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there's a fine line between, um, you know, what's possible and what's, you know, compliant and necessary in the background screening um, arena. Um, so as employers in California, uh, there's state regulatory issues and federal regulatory issues, the uh, FCRA specifically. Um, so clients typically say, well, I want to know anything and everything about a potential applicant or a new hire. Um, what can you show me? How deep can you go? Um, and the question, and, and the situation there is you can go very deep and very broad. The problem is, is that from a compliance perspective, a lot of those things like workers' comp claims and social media and other sensitive areas, uh, potentially civil litigation in the state and federal arena, those things can be the issues when it comes to pre-employment background checks. And so, again, um, the issue is not what you search, it's how you use it and, and, and what happens when those things do come up. So if nothing comes up, you're fine. But then I always tell clients, well, if something does come up in these arenas, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to use it um, in the pre-adverse and adverse action process and how you're going to remove that conditional offer? Um, and they start to understand that, you know, that there are some compliance issues and it doesn't make a lot of sense to create more risk and exposure in the hiring process when you're actually trying to mitigate risk. 
So when you kind of frame it in the context of the risk tolerances of the company, insurance and compliance requirements, maybe requirements that their clients or customers have, it makes more sense to align the background screening process and the package with those specific things as opposed to is it just going broad and deep and wide just because it's possible. So it sounds to me like you sort of you sort of work with your clients who come in and say, oh, I want everything that you sort of temper that by saying, well, and, and I loved how you said that it's, it's not what you see, it's what you use, or you said something, to, the words to that effect, but I thought that was great. Um, it is how you use it, because that's what that, you're right, that's what's going to get them into trouble. Um, and I like this idea that you it sounds to me like you're sort of taking the role of the voice of reason um, in trying to get them the information that not only they need, but they can use if they need to in in the proper way. Does that kind of sound right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, again, they don't. The employers, especially business owners, aren't thinking about what happens when something does arise. So they want to look, but then they don't realize what what those um, ramifications are when something does come up that they shouldn't see, and then how they're going to use it. Um, and so that becomes really what it's all about. And also doing that effectively across all employees uh, or all new hires, um, and, and having a, kind of a plan, which then you can replicate and and use throughout the organization as you scale and grow. Um, and that way you kind of have a refined practice. And then from the employee perspective, hey, um, you know, we, we take, we do compliant background checks to mitigate risk in the business, which makes your employees feel a little bit safer and more secure. And on the onboarding process, it's a very professional way from the get-go of seeing what, how transparent the, the potential app, the applicant or new hire is in the process. And it's really that back and forth, and it's more about the process than it is necessarily um, what's found or not found. Let me ask you this. I, I want to walk through two aspects of this. So one, I, I, know, I know a little bit about uh, uh, to be dangerous when it comes to some of this stuff on background checks, but I do know there's notice, um, there's notice requirements if you decide that you're going to pull that conditional offer based on something you find in the background check. Now, that's a that's a ban-the-box law straight across. But that's not just a state thing. That's a, that's a federal thing as well, correct? Well, um, so ban-the-box was, was, has, has been adopted by many states and some counties and cities. So in California, as a whole, ban-the-box is in effect. Um, and there are various other cities and states across the country that are adopting it. So not all of them are in the same boat. Some um, states still just have SCRA requirements and no ban the box. Um, and I think that people get a little bit confused about ban the box. Ban the box does not ban background checks. Absolutely. It really was, yeah. it really was an initiative created to ban the, the box on a background check or on an uh, employment application where employers would ask applicants, have they been arrested for convicted of a misdemeanor or felony in the application process? That's been removed. And what they're saying now is, is that you can't use that as a discriminatory practice. You can do the background check once the conditional offer is there. And then additionally, ban the box includes information which suggests that you're going to evaluate things like the nature and scope of the position um, based on uh, aligned with the convictions that may be found, how long ago those convictions did occur, even if they're within a seven-year window, which is the California rule for reportable convictions, um, what a rehabilitation has been done, and do those, uh, you know, criminal, does that criminal activity directly impact the workers, customers, or clients that that, app, that that applicant or employee would be working with? So it's really um, increased the necessary compliance from an HR perspective. Um, it's changed the way that applications are being, you know, deployed to applicants. So really you can't ask anything about 
criminal history until after there's a conditional offer. Um, and I wrote an article about that, ban the box and adapting and some different strategies that can be implemented. But, um, it, you know, it's a difficult thing for um, employers to deal with. And, and that's why we say background checks are getting more and more complicated. That's why you probably want to utilize a service that can help you, you know, ensure that compliance. Yeah, I I did a, uh, so when ban, I knew ban the box was coming. And so I kept telling my clients, you know, all of these things they could do to kind of mitigate risk and to get prepared for it. And one of the things I suggested had to do with job descriptions, going through job descriptions and thinking about what types of criminal convictions could reasonably prevent someone legitimately from performing that particular job. And I got this great response. Like, yeah, Teresa, that's a great idea. So what conviction would... <laughs> I was like, uh... <laughs> It's not my area of the law. Let me get an answer for that. So I actually did a program uh, with a colleague of mine, Alan Cravaro, who um, who provided that part of you know that part of the analysis, and we just uh, reran an interview on last show that I did with Alan on ban the box. So it's it is very complicated, and it makes it very difficult. Um, but speaking of the on the front end of doing the background checks, I I've, I've run into a lot of employers who are not particularly clear. They just think they can do it. So they just think that they can, you know, tell the applicant, oh, yeah, we're going to run a background check. And a lot of applicants go, oh, okay. But there's a lot that goes into that, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a typical kind of stumbling block or, or whether it may just misinformation that employers have, which is we put it in our, our handbook or in our policies and we tell them we're going to do it. And so that means we can do it. And really, the, the laws surrounding it really and the, and the really the litigation around non-compliance with background checks really has to do with getting proper authorization and compliance. And that means that the authorization must come from the applicant directly. They must understand what's being done. They must get a notice of consumer rights. And they must understand exactly who the background screening company will be that's doing the background check. So if you have a generic form or you have one from a prior provider that's really not compliant, they really have to have the ability to interact with the background screening company, which is commonly referred to as a CRA, a consumer reporting agency. Um, and that way allows them to ask questions, contest records, obtain a copy of the report, and know who's doing it. And so those areas right there are really the key things where employers can be vulnerable from a litigation perspective. It really has nothing to do with the, what's in the report or anything else. It really has to do with just is the background check authorization disclosure a standalone document that's not part of any other um, you know, documents that the employee or applicant would fill out? The issue there is they don't want them confused. Um, as to what they're doing. It has to be standalone. It has to be specific fonts and sizes, and it's changing constantly. And so that right there is the first thing. Um, and whether you're doing that in paper form or electronic form, um, it's a very easy to stay compliant just by using the correct forms um, from the get-go. And um, if you know, if you want to let our listeners know from the employer side, if they if they want to look at any of the forms that you're talking about, where would they where would they go to look? Um, you know, you can obviously go to the government site and, and – to the look, look up Fair Credit Reporting Act or FCRA Notice of Consumer Rights. Um, we have, uh, you can check with us, we have some paper forms, but we actually use an electronic app that's dynamic that ad- adapts based on where the applicant is living and what where they're applying for work. Because it's gotten so complicated, there's not really one standalone form. It's actually a series of three forms that they have to fill out. Um, and so they're happy to reach out to us, we're happy to provide them to them um, that they can use and they're compliant and updated by legal counsel. Um, but again, it's not something to take on, um, you know, alone. I, I like the idea, too, that it's um, from an employee 
perspective. I like it may seem a bit burdensome, but I do like the idea that they're that they're told who's going to do it and that they can reach out, that they can get a copy of the information. I think that's really important. Um, what do you see just Right, we're going to go to break here in a few minutes, but just kind of quickly, what are some of the stumbling blocks that you see mainly? We can continue this after the break if you if you have more than one or two you want to tell us about. Stumbling blocks um, on the employer side. Like, what do you see where they, they get hung up the most? You know, there's there's a few things that, that usually get them hung up. Um, one is is that uh, we're seeing, especially now in a tighter work uh, workforce environment, there's not as much talent out there. A lot of employers are going to... Um, temporary agencies or staffing companies and relying on them to do the background checks for them. Um, and the staffing companies aren't doing them properly. So when they go to onboard them as an employee, they find issues when they go to screen them with a company like ours or another screening company. Um, that's one area. I think the other area is um, really um, utilizing one touch or one click background checks that they think are national and um instant and giving them all the information and they're missing out on a lot of information they should know about. Um, there's a variety of things that they come about. Um, not using the proper forms and disclosures is, is a big one. Um, and really um, the speed and the speed of the background check. So in having a really refined process that allows them to do a robust comprehensive background check that doesn't take two weeks, right? Because employers don't have the ability to wait two weeks for top talent. So there's a few things that get them caught up. Um, and I think that also, too, that running the same type of background checks for everyone in the organization can be difficult, meaning if you're verifying education and, empl- and employment for anyone and everyone in the organization, that can really slow down your hiring process. And it's not necessary for positions where you don't need to verify they have a bachelor's degree or you don't need to verify that they worked previously for you know competitors or for someone in the industry. Um, those are typical things that get them kind of hung up. And I think, too, um, really the... the um, adoption of technology to help with the process and making the, the HR manager or director's life a lot easier using resources that are out there to really streamline the process so that it doesn't become a burdensome, complicated process on the employer side. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, we're going to have to go to break, but I, I this idea that um, you, it's important to know, you know, that, that for employers to realize you can't delegate that liability to a third party if you make a mistake on in the background check. It, it The buck stops with the employer, even though they hired this person, they don't get to say, oh, I hired this person and they made a mistake. It's all down to them. So they are accountable for that. So it's really important who they choose. But we're going to take, I'm sorry, I love this topic. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more Tim thoughts on effective and compliant background checks. So stay with us. We'll be right back. The average time a resume spends on an HR manager's desk is seven seconds. And most of them are tossed aside. Now imagine if one of those resumes belonged to Yasmin, who was living in a shelter, juggling three jobs. I had to be resilient. That's something that you can't teach. Or if that resume was from someone who worked 12-hour shifts at the recycling company with my dad, who's 72. That taught me a work ethic that I carry with me every day. We rely so much on a resume, yet it could never tell the full story of someone growing up where I did, a lot of things could have gotten in the way of my goals. But I learned to push through, and that's what I bring to work every day. So maybe it's time we look beyond the resume and look to grads of life. Discover new ways to develop great talent that are so much more than what's on paper at gradsoflife.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Grads of Life and the Ad Council. 
This broadcast in some jurisdictions may be considered an attorney advertisement. Teresa A. McQueen is the attorney responsible for Sapphire Legal PC and Workplace Perspective Advertising. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking about background checks with Tim Santoni of Santoni Investigations. So, Tim, I want to ask you about how do you, as an investigator, so you're asked to run the background check, you get all the information, then what does that look like when it gets to the employer? So do you, are you culling the information? Are you removing things that, you know, that, that might be red flags, more information than the employer's entitled to see? Um, what if there's something in the social media? How do you handle that sort of playback to the client? Yeah, it's a great question uh, and something that we have to deal with, uh, you know, quite often. And the situation is that based on where the employer is located and where the the applicant is, is primarily working, there's adjudication rules that impact what we can and can't report. Um, so, for instance, in California, you're talking about seven years and convictions only. So that means if someone committed, you know, assault or some other heinous crime, there was a conviction where the disposition date is beyond seven years. Although we might be able to see it, our team, our adjudication team, We'll probably review those files, look at the compliance requirements, and not be able to report those things because they fall outside of compliance, which is which is tough. Um, we we also often see pending uh, criminal um, cases where there's no disposition, right? They're they're waiting for trial or hearing, or there's no plea just yet, uh, and that makes it makes it um, you know difficult um, when it comes to those criminal records. We have to be very careful about what we do and don't report, um, and how we verify those records. So remember in in the U.S., most any and all criminal records are next by name and date of birth, and so we're having to go court by court to, to, to verify that the records that we found pertain to the applicant. So common names, if you have a Tom Smith, we want to make sure we have a middle name, a date of birth, potentially, if there's information in the criminal file that additionally ties the applicant in, potentially an address or a driver's license number. So we're constantly taking that data and having to cull through it, verify it, make sure it's reportable, and make sure that it applies to the applicant that we're actually screening. Um, so that we can, you know, return those records with a high degree of confidence and give our employers the ability to make a, a solid hiring decision. And then what about the social media stuff? How, are you, how do you handle, as an investigator, that sort of stuff? Do you, use, do you have a strong set of guidelines that are personal to you? Is there something in your industry that guides you on how you handle social media? Because that can be quite a problem, too, based on what, what you're finding. Yeah, so social media is kind of a, a very difficult animal when it comes to background checks on the pre-employment side. Um, you know, I'm sure from your experience in talking with business owners and HR managers, a lot of them will look at LinkedIn or Facebook or look at different things, which can create issues, right? You learn about age, race, religion, yeah, children, all those, all you know, those protected status. things. Yeah, right, right. Um, and on the you know on the pre-employment background side, there are some guidelines that the SCRA has come down with, and there are some ways to do social media screening in a compliant way. At this point, we're not we we are not really pushing it, and nor are a lot of our clients. And it really, the answer is this: the guidance really says you need three points of verification: you know, a name, a date of birth, and an address, or a name, a full name, and a date of birth to verify that that profile belongs to the applicant you're screening. You and I both know that anyone can go out there and create a profile that looks just like you or I with our information. And there's no way to verify that that profile belongs to you or I. It could be someone who's trying to, do, you know, you know, 
bring us down or right, create right. an error or whatever. Yeah. And the way to contest and verify that is very difficult. So while, you know, common guidance would say that, you know, you might advise HR managers and recruiting folks not to look there, but really social media is being used as a tool for recruitment in, in that process. And the screening part of it, um, we're really we're really not having employers ask for that, and we're really not having good guidance around what is really compliant on social media screening and what's not. Um, so we're sticking with, with what, what you know, the traditional type of things when we're talking about SSN trace, not crim, county crim, federal criminal, um, healthcare sanctions for healthcare people, and, and sticking to searches that really are tangible and, and relevant to those, those hiring decisions because social media can be kind of a, can be a, a deep, dark hole when it comes to information. Yeah, it's a huge minefield. You know, there's yeah. there's so many things that can go wrong, you know, and people making assumptions. And I talk all the time, you know, to HR people, and I, I try to talk about this idea that social media is not real. And I would deal with this in litigation, too. So you, you get these responses back from opposing parties saying, making assumptions based on the pictures or the post. And I'm like, you really can't, for all the reasons that you said, you just can't. And especially, you know, most of us, it's it's like, you know, social media is great. It's a ha- Our lives are great on social media. Most people post happy things. And so you look at that and someone who's trying to claim emotional distress in an employment law case, and you're like, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> shopping yeah. therapy yeah, is therapy. <laughs> yeah. We do, I mean, on the investigation side of our business, when we're talking about, you know, employment-related litigation, workers' comp, and other things. It's a great tool to track where people are, what they're up to. If they claim they can't travel and they're traveling, it's great, you know, evidence to come back and say, hey, you know, you say you can't travel, but then you're doing this and let them refute that it is or it isn't them. Right. Um, and, and also, you go back to the point that you brought up about what we see that we can't report or what's on social media that may be a leading indicator of potential issues with, with, uh, with an applicant that becomes an employee. And that's why uh, right now we're really in the process of advising clients to recheck and rescreen employees. So implementing something in their policy or handbook that gives them the ability to recheck at 12, 24, 36 months, because long-term employees should be rechecked. Things change. Just because you saw on social media that they got a DUI, you can't fire them. But if you rescreen them and you have a conviction for a DUI and a suspended license, that would be actionable because they drive in the course and scope or insurance doesn't cover them or a variety of other things. So whether it's, you know, initial screening or, you know, screening after the fact, it's a great way to uncover all those things that come about or are, you know, talked about through other channels, whether that's, you know, in the break room at work or on social media, again, it comes back to what's actionable. And an actionable item would be a conviction that comes up on a background check after they've, um, you know, been employed for you for, for a period of time. Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the factual basis, the factual basis for something is always going to be much stronger than trying to just sort of flail out in the beginning and throw the widest net that you possibly can. And I think it kind of goes back to what you said that I really liked about get what you get what you need, get what you're looking for. If, if you don't need to run a background check on this person, don't do it. It doesn't mean that you're prohibited from doing at some point during the employment relationship if it becomes necessary. Like you said, and I, I like that tactic. I like that idea because I think if you're getting, if you're going to have a problem, it's going to be judged on the facts of the situation. Um, right. And so it would be much easier and much more justifiable to do it as it as it comes through. So we're getting, uh, we're getting down to the end of it. I want to ask you something a little bit um on the employee side. Sure. So what 
What is it that you would tell employees about lessons that you've learned from your perspective on years of conducting background checks that might help them through the process or stem problems if they are facing a background check with an employer? Yeah, so it's a it's a really kind of can be a, a scary situation. Employees are concerned about what may come up or what what won't come up. And and my experience is that you know if you're concerned about what or what will come up, what won't, be transparent with the HR person. Let them know what could potentially be out there, so that when it does come up, they're not surprised and they have the ability to communicate and find out and get an explanation. Our experience is that most HR people, when they're surprised, they are really upset because why why didn't this person alert me to the fact that you know this was going to come up. Um, also, a lot of times employees are concerned about minor traffic violations, family law disputes, um, small claims actions, things like that. Those things are not typically reportable under, in an employment background screening setting in the private sector. Um, and if they're super concerned, go down and get a live scan. See what comes up. Live scan will show everything from arrests to convictions to court cases and get clarification. Or just um, you know reach out to the background screening provider and ask, you know, to get clarification about what what's come up if something does come up on there, so you have some clarity. But uh, you know, transparency and honesty when it comes to HR managers really goes a long way. Um, they don't like to be surprised, and under you know California ban the box, the severity of the offense, the time since it occurred, and how it impacts their direct job duties is something that the HR person can consider. So as an employee, don't just assume because you have a DUI five years ago that they're not going to hire you. Um, you know, there are some some things some things that can be addressed in that regard, and it's not always an obstacle to hire. I agree. I think that's that's great advice. So as we come down to it, do you have any key takeaways for our listeners or maybe a favorite uh, client cautionary tale? Our listeners love stories. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I'll leave you with this. You know, a lot of our clients come to us because they're tired of hiring people that, that are allegedly injured or have pre-existing workers' comp claims. And they come to us and they say, well, we want to do background checks and we want to check for workers' comp claims because we don't want to hire anyone that has workers' comp claims because those are expensive and problematic oh. and, you know, impact our, you know. And so it goes You're back killing me. You're killing me with this. <laughs> yeah. So it goes back to the point that it is possible to look for litigated workers' comp claims, but there's not a flag on the file that says it was fraudulent or that, you know, that this was a problematic person. Really, it's just a reporting of the actual litigation. So what I always advise clients is, look, if you're going to hire people, especially in, you know, blue-collar manual labor areas, create a solid job description. Understand what their job duties are. Work with the lab or a clinic that can do a pre-placement physical, a lift test. Something that can evaluate the person before they get hired, create a baseline for their physical capabilities and their ability to do the specific job functions at, before they get working, and then do a substance abuse test on top of that with your background check. That's a great way to contain your exposure as it relates to that lot, the, the potential loss. That way, if there is a worker's comp claim, you have a baseline. You can go back and say at the time of hire, they were able to meet these job descriptions. They did a lift test for 50 pounds, and they could do it. Um, and if they can't meet the, 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 the job duties and the functions, the physical capacity, you don't have to hire them. Um, but looking for workers' comp claims and creating a policy around that does not work. It's about cultural things and putting in different pieces in place to mitigate risk in your business. There's not a 100% you know, cure for work, workplace injuries, accidents, and things like that. All you can do is implement those things that, that work out well. And also, you know, in the event that you do have issues post-employment, there are remedies you can look at social media if you have reasonable cause. You can look at criminal things, and you don't need disclosure and authorization from 
the employee. And when litigation arises, there's other things that can be done. So use pre-employment background checks for what they're meant for, which is a compliant pre-employment screening to make a hiring decision. Once someone's employed, look at rechecking them. And if something does arise, have the ability and the, and the wherewithal to dig deeper and get verified information from a third party that could stand up in court or litigation if it goes that far. I know most employers don't think it's going to go that way, but in California, we're a very litigious environment. No. Test. A lot of these things end up in court, some sort of court, administrative court, state court, a federal court, you know, mediation, whatever. And the rules of evidence are different across the board, but just document this stuff from the get-go with a third party, consult with counsel, can talk to an HR consultant, whatever it is, that you have a defense, you can have the best possible chance of prevailing, um, you know, in, in, a, in an environment that can be very challenging for employers. All right. Well, I would just add to that, always, you know, always check with uh, outside legal counsel uh, to make sure that you're you're practicing fair hiring, uh, fair hiring practices are being put in place and best practices are being put in place. Well, that's our show for today, Tim. I want to thank you so much for joining me and for sharing all your valuable insight and your unique perspective on this really important topic. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Tim or Santoni Investigations, you can find them on the web at santoniservices.com. That's S-A-N-T-O-N-I-S-E-R-V-I-C-E-S dot com. You can also connect to Tim via our website at sapphirelegal.com slash podcast and clicking on episode 23. I want to also thank our listeners, my radio angels, James and the Nave at Night, and Workplace Perspectives team extraordinaire, our engineer and producer, Paul Roberts. A welcome shout out to our new associate producer, Michelle Hardy, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. Thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective, and until next time, keep raising the bar. Keep raising the bar.